Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Madison, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMadison.com. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open us up to your word this morning, Lord. We, we need your revelation right now as a people, as a country, as a globe. It is always a time to feast on your word, Lord, but we are particularly hungry right now. So speak, Heavenly Father, and we pray that we would not harden our hearts today when we hear your voice. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, We're often forced in our world to choose between two options. The world is really complex. People are super complex. Ideas are very complex. History's complex. Uh, But today, complexity often gets suffocated into two camps, as you well know. Uh, This is our world. Republican or Democrat? Trump or Biden? Nobody else is up there on the debate stage with those two guys. Love or hate, it's often communicated. Racist or communist? Nationalist or anarchist? And often, things get presented to us in this way, in two options, intentionally as a way of political strategy. Um, Because it forces you to choose a side, right? Forces you to assimilate one way or the other. And often, our decision is often forced upon us in a single moment where we have to make a decision or in a single question. There's no time for nuance, you just have to pick. This is like being an athlete and hearing the national anthem play. You're gonna kneel or you're gonna stand. It's like being a uh, politician and having your nightmare come true when you have that perfect yes or no gotcha question asked you that you cannot get out of and the cameras are rolling and you start sweating and you've you've gotta pick a side. Um, Our passage this morning is so delicious because it's a time when people try and squeeze Jesus into one of these situations. They try to pin him in between a political rock and a hard place. And while his response is one of the most famous things he's ever said and has literally shaped political thought for thousands of years, it's also white hot for us this week and in this year. We need Jesus this week. Amen. The feeling of America, just like walking down the streets on Wednesday after the debate, you just could feel it, couldn't you? It's just like the whole country was just rolling and moaning in a way. And now our president has coronavirus, so things are just getting crazier and crazier. So we need need gospel this morning. Um, If you're joining us for the first time, the text we're studying in this series, and this series is coming all from a portion of scripture which is a scene at the end of Jesus's life where he's in the temple and all the cultural leaders from all the different parties and religious sects are coming to him to see what he's all about. And they're throwing gotcha questions at him to try to make him slip up politically or theologically. So we looked at one of their questions last week, the first question, and this week we get to the second question, which is very political and very tense. So grab your Bible and turn with me to Matthew 22. Matthew chapter 22. This is that portion that uh, Ian read earlier, but we're going to dig into it again. We're going to verse 15. 
Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. So you know what's going on. And they sent their disciples to him. Don't you love that? They're not kind of brave enough to do it themselves. They get their young guys to go and ask Jesus the question. Along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. You do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Don't you just love how thick they're laying it on? Um, So they're being very flattering. Verse 17 Uh, Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Um, This is an extremely charged moment, and it's probably the most well-crafted gotcha question Jesus ever asked, and here's why. The tax they're referring to is the Roman poll tax. Remember, the Romans had conquered and colonized Judea, and thus they were the hated oppressors and occupiers of the Jewish people. So it wouldn't be outlandish to think of French people during World War II, Nazi-occupied France, or British-occupied India. It's that tense. And this poll tax was what Caesar levied on all his colonies. Um, It was one denarius for every adult male, and thus through this tax, Rome was able to fund all of their wars and everything, but also keep a census of who was in their empire. The coin itself, the one that Jesus is talking about, was minted for this specific tax and reason. And on the one side, it had the image of Tiberius Caesar, the emperor, and on the other side, his mother. Don't you love he gives his mother the other side? Around the edge of the coin, it said, Tiberius Caesar, worshipful son of the divine Augustus. If you Google this, you can actually see coins of the one that Jesus would have picked up and looked at. This tax, because of all that, was deeply, deeply emotional. The coin itself was emotional. If you were a Jew, it sparked rage. Not only did it represent oppression and occupation, it also, for a Jewish person, was an image of a false god. So it was like a little transportable idol that you would have had in your pocket. Okay, so this thing was bad news. It's intense enough to be asked the question then, for Jesus to be asked that. What makes it more intense is who asks him. In one corner, you have the Pharisees. Um, we're familiar with the Pharisees. They're all over the Bible. But the Jew, this is, these are the Jews who would have been very anti-Rome, anti-Herod. They were radical. These are zealots. Uh, a contemporary, a Jewish contemporary of Jesus, a guy named Judas Galanite. I don't know if I'm saying his name right. Said at the time, quote, what is taxation but an introduction to slavery? Sounds punk rock, doesn't it? In the other corner, you have the Herodians, and it's right there in the Bible. And they're on the opposite side. The Herodians are the collaborators. Herod, the hated Herod, Herod the Great, was this half-Jewish puppet king that Caesar put in charge of Judea. And so the Herodians are the ones working with the occupied government. So if you've ever studied World War II and Nazi-occupied Europe, you know that in all these countries, the vast majority of the native people absolutely loathed being under Nazi occupation. It was miserable. However, in every country, there were those who got fat and wealthy by collaborating with and informing the Nazis, people in those towns. It's the same here. So how do you think the Herodians and the Pharisees felt about each other? They hated each other. Pharisees would have been anti-tax strongly. 
Herodians, as you can guess, would have been Protax. And isn't it fascinating that these guys join forces that collaborate together to ask this question? Jesus, do you pay the tax or not? Those are your options. Are you a collaborator or are you a revolutionary? Are you, hence the sermon title, a nationalist or are you an anarchist? For Jesus to respond yes or no would have been incriminating politically to him. I hope you see that. Uh, no matter what he would have done here, people would have hated him. The mics are recording. The cameras are flashing. Jesus gets his two minutes of un uninterrupted silence to speak. So what does he say? Pick back up your Bible. Flip with me to, to uh, Matthew 22 again. We're going to pick up in verse 18. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And by the way, here, it's interesting that these guys have a coin to show. It's kind of like, oh yeah, you're a hypocrite. But to go on, they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and they went away. Behold the wisdom and the genius of Jesus. I'm so glad you and I have never been in those situations. Jesus was, and he sent them all away speechless by his answer. His answer has literally, like I said, sparked an entire history of political thought and philosophy it's been debated, it's been argued, it's been debated again and pondered for literally thousands of years. Um, it's very political and practical. It's also deeply theological. It's as one scholar puts it that I read this week, quote, as clear and convincing as it is unfathomable and deep, unquote. And so we're not going to get into the unfathomable depths of this statement, but we absolutely can see what is clear and convincing. And it revolves around two ideas with either side of the half of his statement. It comes in kind of two chunks. Two simple ideas that we need to think about this week. The first is this. Christians honor the state. Christians honor the state. By saying, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, Jesus is legitimizing the government. He's joining the rest of the biblical witness in affirming that the state is God's servant. That's Bible language. No matter what state it is, put there for the purpose of maintaining law and order, peace and justice, sewage and roads, thank God, education, and so on and so forth. Um, I don't know if the, the Jacob's reading of Romans was choppy to read, but if you heard it, let me just read a little bit of Romans 13. Romans 13 is fascinating. It says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Moving along to, to verse 7, Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. In other words, render to Caesar what's due Caesar, the things that are Caesar's. 
So Jesus is giving divinely sanctioned dignity to government here. And he's calling Christians to be good citizens, engaged, tax-paying people. That might sound to you and me like a duh statement, but it was shocking for his hearers because of whose government he was sanctioning. And then whose government was it? It was Caesar's government. Remember, Rome was a pagan state. Remember, Caesar and Rome would be the government that would play the part in executing Jesus only days later. Yet even so, Jesus says, give Caesar his due. So the lesson here for us, which is very important, is that the government does not have to be Christian. It doesn't have to be Jewish. It even doesn't have to be perfect in order for us to honor it, submit to it, and respect its authority. Government is always going to be imperfect. But Jesus still says, give Caesar his due. Now, this would have been a hard word to the Herodians or the Pharisees, the first half, my people who are here. Pharisees, right? The revolutionary people. That would have been really tough. Oh my gosh, Jesus is saying to pay the tax. It's also a hard word for those of us who, because we have massive issues with America, and there are plenty to point out, are prone to what I would call either insubordination or indifference politically. Um, And these are really the two ditches that I think Jesus is critiquing here with the first half of this statement. Insubordination is the Maltov cocktail route, right? Flip the flag upside down, go against the country. And even if you don't know what a Maltov cocktail is or you've never thrown one, this is the Twitter equivalent of a Maltov cocktail. It's going on social media and just slandering everything and hating your government. Um, And what fuels this view, even in Christian circles, I might add, because this really has influenced certain strains of Christianity, is Marxism's fundamental skepticism that authority and power is wrong and always to be suspect. People abuse authority and power. No one knows that more than Jesus. But notice, Jesus is not skeptical of authority, right? He believes in it, even if it's a pagan state. So we respect the state. We honor the institution of government. We pray for our leaders, no matter what party they're from, as the Bible commands us. So that's the insubordination route. The other ditch, if you don't like government, is the indifference route. This is the monastic, uh, apolitical ditch. We think politicians are all slimy. Many of them are. The world is evil. And so we retreat. We kind of build a bomb shelter to like keep... keep uh, our own safe, and we just let our culture burn around us. We're like, I'm going to wash my hands of all of this. But I actually think Jesus's words challenge that way of thinking just as much. Our government is a democracy, which means it is participatory. So for us to render to Caesar what is due Caesar is actually to give the state our participation. This doesn't mean you have to run for Congress, even though you could. But all of us have our role to play, to be good citizens, to bless our neighbors, and to vote according to our conscience. Christians honor the state. I hope you see that. That's the first principle here, which would have been really shocking. But the second is this. Christians keep holy distance from the state. Let me say that again. Christians keep holy distance from the state. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. If in the first half, Jesus gives government a place in our life, in the second half of his statement, Jesus puts government in its place, if you know what I mean. 
If in the first half, Jesus legitimizes the government's authority, in the second, he shows it is not the highest or comprehensive authority. If in the first half, Jesus commands Christians to be involved in our countries, in the second, he commands us to be distinct from our countries. We pay taxes to Caesar, yes, but we worship God. And that implies, by the way, that Caesar is not God, which is exactly what it said on the coin. The coin bore the image of Caesar, and Jesus says, that's Caesar's, you can give that back to him, but whose image do you and I bear? God's. Would not have been lost on his hearers. We have God's imprint, if you will, God minted us. You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body, St. Paul would say later. And thus Jesus says, you give yourselves, your whole selves, your trust, your allegiance, your hope, your identity to the Lord. And by implication, not to Caesar. So you see how Jesus's double-edged answer slices the other way. As Christians, we honor the state and we keep a holy distance from the state. Now, what does it mean to keep a holy distance from the state? I'll grant you that that sounds like a really weird statement, and I know you've never heard it before because I made it up for this service. Uh, but I hope its weirdness helps us to engage with what Jesus is saying in a fresh way. Holy distance from the state. On an ideological level, in like the world of abstraction and ideas, it, it basically means separation of church and state. It's pretty much that simple. It means we don't allow God and government to become entangled. Yes, God and government were married in the nation of, of Israel in the Old Testament. But with Jesus's answer here, this is really important. And with the birth of the post-Pentecost international church, the Bible is very clear that's not a thing anymore. God's people are global, international, all tribes, all tongues, all nations. So Jesus drives a wedge between the kingdom of God and an actual kingdom. You know, in marriage, how we say, we quote Jesus, what God has joined together, let no one tear asunder. We want to say the opposite here. Was God had brought asunder, let no man join. That's on an ideological level. But I'm more interested, actually, and what this means for us on a personal level and our personal political engagement in 2020. On a personal level, I think this means keeping our critical distance emotionally, philosophically, ideologically from all political parties and leaders. This is not allowing the gospel to become enmeshed with, hitched to, or dictated by any strain of American politics. As we used to say in cheesy uh, late 90s, early 2000s youth group, if you were there at that point, leave room for the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? You're on the bus with your girlfriend on a youth group trip, leave room for the Holy Spirit, okay? In your political engagement, leave some room for the Holy Spirit. I'm aware all this might sound super vague. So here is a uh, historical example to try to prove what I'm talking about or explain what I'm talking about. In the 1930s, the Third Reich was on the rise in Germany. The majority of German Christians, sadly, Protestant and Catholic, were quick to support the National Socialist Party. Why? 
because Germany utterly had suffered in the 30s and late 20s, utterly had suffered. And the Nazis cared about Germany. They were fighting for it. So the church embraced the Third Reich. They got close. They became entangled. But a small portion of pastors and lay people, Christians, smelled a rat. There were them, and we need to learn from them. They pushed back, and what they did is early on, they kept a holy distance from the Third Reich. They kept them at arm's length. And these people came together in 1934 to issue what is the famous Barman Declaration. And it is a beautiful piece of just Christian literature from the 20th century. You can look it up online. I highly recommend it. It was like the 95 Theses of 1934. Let me just read you two things. And I want you to hear what, how they're obeying Jesus's words here in both to honor the state and to keep their distance. So I'm quoting. Scripture tells us that in the as yet unredeemed world in which the church also exists, the state has by divine appointment the task of providing for justice and peace. The church acknowledges the benefit of this divine appointment in gratitude and reverence before God. Wow. Christians are saying this in 1934 in Germany. That's impressive. You hear the respect for, for Caesar there. But they also say this, we reject the false doctrine as though the state over and beyond its special commission should and could become the single and totalitarian order of human life, thus fulfilling the church's vocation as well. They're like, uh-uh, stay in your lane, bro. They also say this the other way, which we need to hear. We also reject the false doctrine as though the church over and beyond its special commission, should and could appropriate the characteristics, the tasks, and the dignity of the state, thus itself becoming an organ of the state. Sometimes it's hard to keep track in long quotations, but do you hear this? Now, here's the thing. Hitler examples are always a roll of the dice because it's so intense. It's like, in college, if anybody uses the Nazis as an example, it's like, you know, it's so out there. Yes, we all are excited. We applaud these guys for not becoming Nazis. It was a wise decision, and we'd love to think that we would do the same thing, right? Oh, man, if I was in a Hitler situation, I'd be like, whoa, keep some distance here. But here's the kicker. Jesus' charge to keep holy distance is not just in situation, situations of insane fascism. Okay, it's for all times, it's for all nations, and it's for all parties. Amen? Amen. Do you hear what I'm saying? Even if your nation's healthy, even if you agree with your party, even if your leader is awesome, even if your party is for some things that Jesus also teaches, you keep your holy distance between God and Caesar. We don't keep distance until we find the right Christian party or nation and then embrace it. It's not what Jesus is saying. We don't keep distance only when we start to feel like things are going sideways. We always keep our holy distance. Personal exam. Do you have that kind of critical distance? from your party, from your political sensibility. 
Doesn't mean you're not engaged. Jesus already said, render to Caesar what is Caesar. He's just saying, you give to God what's God's. Brothers and sisters, can I challenge us? I fear that most of us in the American church on the right and on the left are way too close. Way too close. Three reasons why we keep our distance from the state. They all start with a P. You're welcome. (laughs) We keep distance so we can clearly prioritize our allegiances. Think of anything, just think of the word priority. We're both under the authority of the state and God. They're both true authorities. St. Augustine wrote on this beautifully in his book, City of God. We're both under the will of the state and the will of God. We identify as Americans and Christians, but there is a priority. Amen? Amen. There's a hierarchy. In this situation, this hierarchy is very, very, very good. And if God's will and the will of the state conflicts through prayerful, biblical consideration, we do as Peter says in Acts 5, and we are bound to obey God rather than men. Same goes for our identity. The communion of saints, our Christian identity, beats our passport 10 out of 10 times. 10 out of 10. But you have to have distance to even make that distinction, right? Otherwise, God's will and the state's will conflate. American identity and Christian identity start to get confused. That's bad news. So we keep our distance so we can keep a priority of allegiances. Number two, we keep holy distance so we can prophesy to the state. Yes, we honor the emperor. The Bible Bible literally says that. We pray for the president, no matter who it is. We pray for Congress. We pray for the judiciary. Goodness, how they need our prayers right now. We should pray for them. We should care. But we are also always called to be distinct enough to be prophetic, to call out our systems and leaders when they need to be called out. You can't read a book of the Bible and not see people the people of God having a prophetic office in the whatever place they're in. But in order to prophesy, you've got to be set apart. Amen? When we lose our holy distance, we lose this ability, actually. When we become so enmeshed with the party, when we start to hate the other side so much, like everybody else in our world, our tongue gets cut, cut out, our eyes close up. We lose our ability to see what we're a part of. We get too close to be critical, and that is a nasty spiritual disease. So here's another little personal exam you can take. How easy is it for you to critique your own party and to dissent from your own political whatever? We all know you're good at criticizing the other party, okay? We're all amazing at that. Everybody's good at being prophetic against the other side. What about your side? we got to keep distance so we can be prophetic. That's our office. Third, keeping a holy distance enables us to protect our unity. There's so many more Ps we could say about this. These are three that I think are important for us right now. Um, There's a guy named Richard John Newhouse who was a Catholic priest, and he was one of undoubtedly the greatest political thinkers of the 20th century. He's a fascinating guy because he marched with Dr. King in the 60s and viciously fought against abortion later on in the 20th century. So really interesting guy. He, he thought about these things. He was deeply involved in the public square and also was deeply a uh, man of integrity and conviction as a Christian. He says this, quote, 
The conflation of Christian faith with a specific political agenda inevitably leads to the distortion of the faith. We must never declare our politics to be Christian politics, thereby implicitly excommunicating those Christians who disagree with us. Here's what he's saying. When we get too close, we start to think that our politics are the Christian politics. And this leads us to think that to vote that way is actually a matter of Christian obedience. And that leads you to think that the people who vote the other way are anti-Christian. Now, I know I'm, I'm touching on the, the nerve here, but Democrats think this about Republicans. You forfeit your integrity if you do this. And yes, Republicans utterly think that about Democrats. You forfeit your integrity if you go that way. Hear me, there are things that are a matter of clear Christian obedience. Christians are called to advocate for racial and economic justice, full stop, central to the Bible. Christians are called to advocate for life and for sexual and familial integrity, full stop. But remember, things get packaged for us into two really weird options, if we're honest. There's a lot of things on both sides that aren't Christian, so it's not simple. It's not cut and dry, even if we would like it to be. Keeping a holy distance, therefore, means resisting what Pastor Tim Keller calls ethical package deals. Uh, and Tim Keller just wrote a beautiful article on this. If this is especially hard to just think about these things, I highly commend it to you. Um, but this means resisting the temptation to label one entire package as Christian. And when we do that, when we resist that temptation, we're just acknowledging that political engagement is complex. The shape of the cross does not fit into any of the square or round holes that our political world offers us. Let me say that again. The shape of the cross does not fit into any of the square or round holes that our world is offering us. So what do we do? What do we do? We are left to navigate that complexity according to our conscience, to our Christian conscience. And we acknowledge that Christians are coming at this from a lot of different places and are going to be navigating this with their conscience in different ways. I know there's a lot of questions with this and there's a lot more conversation we can have. But the bottom line is if we want our churches to not be split down party lines, we all together have to keep our distance. Where our first allegiance is with the Lord, our first obedience is to Jesus. We're keeping distance to be prophetic from wherever we are and we're protecting our unity. So let's bring this all together. Render to Caesar to the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Do you see how this sermon could literally go on for like the next week? I mean, this is such a deep, rich, and fascinating answer to probe the depths of. Was Jesus a nationalist or an anarchist? He was neither. This is weird to call him this but it's totally true. He was a Christian. The same is true of us. Our view, brothers and sisters, is not centrist. We are not a voting block, normal like everybody else. Our view is supernatural. Our view is Christian. Jesus was prophetic. He did go against the grain, but he was certainly not guilty of insubordination or a political indifference, which is, by the way, what he was charged with, insubordination. When you look at Jesus, you see someone who has deep respect for the authority of the state. T. 
deep respect. He's the best citizen like any country could ask for. But you also see one who has such a holy distance, right? He, he comes and stands before the Sanhedrin. He comes and stands before Pilate and he's just Herod. And he is, he's doing this. He is not fooled. He's not about, he's not afraid. My other favorite example of this in the scriptures is Daniel. And Daniel is, is the book that we are studying in our home groups right now. And it thrills me that all of our different home groups are studying Daniel. Think about Daniel for a second. Think about his honor for the state of Babylon. Babylon was hated just as much as Rome, okay? Same, same story. This dude works on the king's staff. He's literally doing everything he can to bless the kingdom of Babylon, for goodness sake. It's like Joseph working for Egypt. He's a gift to Babylon, but oh my, what a beautiful picture of distance Daniel is. He's set apart enough multiple times in that story to go, no. He's distant enough to be prophetic. I was talking with one of our home group, home group leaders this week, Sam Cook, about this. And Sam was just pointing out how significant it is that in the very first chapter of the book, Daniel says no to the meat and the wine of Babylon's court. And he's very, he, he gives a lot of favor to Babylon. He's so respectful. But I think he says, I resolved to not be defiled by the king's food. So he's there. He's working with the court. And yet at the same time, it's this like symbol of him like not fully embracing the delicacies that Babylon is offering. Wow. Jesus and Daniel are beautiful meditations for us in this season. And just as a final meditation, how did it end up for them? for Daniel and for Jesus. These guys did not pick up the revolutionary sword, nor did they assimilate. So how did the powers that be handle that? Daniel was literally thrown to the lions, despite his respect for the state, to be torn apart by lions. And for Jesus, isn't it interesting that it was the people on both sides of the question asked to him, the Pharisees and the Herodians, who were responsible for his execution. They collaborated together to nail him to the cross. The world could not handle his holiness nor his honor. It didn't fit into anywhere. So for us, and Marissa and I were talking about this night and this was big for us, the path of Christ is not the way of political comfort. Amen? Amen. This is not the way to have your best election season now, right? It's not the way for you to have everybody in your neighborhood love you. It's not the way to avoid issues in politics. It is the way of the cross. But the promise as you pick up your cross in both books, Daniel and the Gospels, is that you will be vindicated by God. The lion's mouth was shut. Jesus rose from the dead and Rome remember, burn to the ground. So don't lose hope, brothers and sisters. Behold the example of Christ in this season. Don't put your hope in princes, as the Psalms would say, as Isaiah would say. One day a miracle will be no more like Rome. Put your trust in the Lord. I want to leave you uh, with a note of humility. Again, I know that these are really deep things. There's so much more to say, and that's where political philosophy comes in. Well, how does this work out? How do we do this? What's the, what's the right way? Um, so on that note, I want to end with a quote of humility from Richard John Newhouse, this Catholic priest uh, in the 20th century that I think beautifully ties all these things together. He says, 
It's an awkward posture being an alien citizen. Amen. It is. Christian political engagement is an endlessly difficult subject. Our Lord said to render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, but he did not accommodate us by spelling out the details. Over 2,000 years, Christians have again and again thought they got the mix just right from this honor, distance, honor, distance, only to have it blow up in their faces and not so incidentally in the faces of others. We're always having to go back to the drawing board, which is to say to first things. Even when, especially when, we are most intensely engaged in the battle, first things must be kept first in mind. It is not easy, but it is imperative. It profits us nothing if we win all the political battles while losing our own soul. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to God the things that are God's. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, no one, this is so sensitive, Lord. And no human, not me, not anybody else, has the wisdom to slice through the political rock and the political hard place that we find ourselves in all the time. No one has the answer. No political party has the answer. But Heavenly Father, you have the answer. And you have given all authority to the Son. And Lord, we see your wisdom here. We see the way that these people came to you and you offered this unique, supernatural Christian path forward. Lord, we see the way that you entered in and were faithful to God, even when it was hard and you were vindicated in the resurrection. Lord, personally, would you come alongside us in this next month? Personally, would you be with each of us in Christchurch Madison and anyone else watching right now? Would you personally speak us that word that we need to slice through the different warring sides in our country? Set us apart, Lord. We want to be holy as you are holy. We want to be full of love as you are full of love. We want to show honor as you show honor. So Lord, we confess our need of you and we pray all of this in your strong name. Amen.